Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Chloe Aritis was born in New York and grew up in the Netherlands and Mexico City. After receiving a BA from Harvard, she went on to receive a PhD from Oxford University. A collection of essays, Magic and the Literary Fantastique, in 19th century France was released in 2005. Her first novel, Book of Clouds, published in 2009, won the Prix du Premier Roman Etranger in France. Her second novel is Asunder, and she lives in London. Merritt Tierce was born and raised in Texas, graduated from college at 19, and waited tables for 10 years before attending the Iowa Writers Workshop. She received a Rona Jaff Foundation Writers Award in 2011 and was a 2013 National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 author. Merritt currently writes for the Netflix show Orange is the New Black, and she lives in Los Angeles. Please give Chloe and Merritt a warm skylight welcome. Should I read the opening? Yes, thank you so much for coming, everyone. I think Chloe's going to read a little bit, and then um, we'll have a conversation, and, uh, and then she'll read some more, and we'll repeat. So, yes, begin. <laughs> imprisoned on this island, I would say, imprisoned on this island, and yet I was no prisoner, and this was no island. During the day, I'd roam the shore, aimlessly, purposefully, and in search of digressions. The dogs, a hut, boulders, nude tourists, scantily clad ones, palm trees, balapas, sand-sifting umber and adrenaline, the waves upward grasp, a boat in the distance, its throat flashing in the sun. The ancient Greeks created stories out of a simple juxtaposition of natural features, my father once told me, investing rocks and caves with meaning. But there in Sipolite, I did not expect any myths to be born. Sipolite. People said the name meant Beach of the Dead, though the reason for this was debated. Was it because of the number of visitors who met their ends in the treacherous currents, or because of the native Sapotecs who would bring their dead from afar to bury in its sands? Beach of the Dead. It had an ancient ring, ancestral, commanding both dread and respect, and after hearing about the unfortunate souls who each year got caught in the riptide, I decided I would never go in beyond where I could stand. Others said Sipolite meant lugar de caracoles, place of seashells, and attractive thoughts and spirals are such neat arrangements of space and time. And what are beaches if not a conversation between the elements, a constant movement inward and outward? My favorite explanation, which only one person put forward, was that Sipolite was a corruption of the word sopilote, and that every night a black vulture would envelop the beach in its dark wings, and feed on whatever the waves tossed up. It's easier to reconcile yourself with sunny places if you can imagine their nocturnal counterpart. Once dusk had fallen, I would head to the bar and spend hours under its thatched universe, a large palapa on the shores of the Pacific, decked with stools, tables, and miniature palm trees. It was where all boats came to dock and refuel, syrup added to cocktails for maximum effect. And I'd imagine that everything was as artificial as the electric blue drink, then the miniature palm trees grew fake after dusk, the chlorophyll struggling and the life force gone from the green, that the wooden stalls, stools had turned to laminate. Sometimes the hanging lamps would be dimmed and the music amplified, a cue for the drunks and half-drunks to clamber onto the tables and start dancing. The shoreline ran through every face, destroying some, enhancing others. And at moments when I'd had enough reminders of humanity, I would look around for the dogs, who, like everyone else at the beach, came and went according to mood. A curious snout or a pair of gleaming eyes would appear on the fringes of the palapa, take in the scene, and then, most often, finding nothing of interest, retire once more into darkness. Before long, it became apparent that the Barn Sipolite was a meeting place for fabulists, and everyone seemed to concoct a tale as the night wore on. One girl, a painter with cartoon lips and squinty eyes, said her boyfriend had suffered a heart attack on his yacht and been forced to drop her off at the nearest port since his wife was about to be helicoptered in with a doctor. In more collected tones, 
A tall German explained to everyone that he was a representative of the German Society for Protection Against Superstition, or Deutsche Gesellschaft Schutz vor Aberglauben. He wrote the name in tiny German script on a sheet of rolling paper for us to read, and had been sent to Mexico after a stint in Italy. An actress from Zacatecas no one had heard of insisted she was so famous that a theater, a planet, and a crater on Venus had been named after her. And you, one of them would ask, noticing how intently I listened, what brought you here? I'd run away, I told them. I'd run away from home. Are your parents evil? No, not at all. I'd run away with someone. And where was this someone? Good question. And who was this someone? An even better question. But that was only half the story. I'd also come because of the dwarves. However fantastical it now seemed, I was here with Tomas, a boy I hardly knew, in search of a troop of Ukrainian dwarves. I say boy, though he was 19 to my 17, and I say dwarves, though I'd yet to see them with my own eyes. In any case, if I stopped to think about it for more than a few seconds, the situation was almost entirely my fault. Calming thoughts were hard to come by, no calm, only numbness, as if stuck halfway through a dream, yet the realization didn't trouble me. So that's the opening. Thank you. So uh, when you were reading that, I was struck by uh, what you, um, the line about spirals being neat arrangements of space and time, and uh, was really interesting to me to listen to the beginning, the opening of the book, because it, if the book is a spiral, the opening of the book takes place somewhere not on the outer edge, it's, it's more located, I would say it's kind of towards the center of the story. And, um, but I read, because I read the book from start to finish and now I'm hearing you read the beginning of it again, uh, I have such a different perspective on it, which is interesting to me. I, I don't often read books more than once, but I can tell in this instance it would be a really remarkable experience to go back and read it again, which is maybe not something you can do on purpose as a writer to make your book do that, but I, I think it's nonetheless an achievement. Um, so, if you if you are here, if you have you if you've read the book, will you read raise your hand just so I know? Okay, cool. So, because uh, you all should read the book, of course, and thank you for being here. But um, I'd love to hear you um, explain what the book is about or present it. It, it doesn't have to be that straightforward, um, and I think that is maybe kind of a cheap concept when it comes to books, when someone asks you what it's about. I mean, I'm more interested in the experience of reading it, but if you could uh, present it however you wish to, just describe it a little bit so that as we move forward in this conversation, people have some grasp of what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, What's well, loosely based on an experience, an episode from my own adolescence when I was 16, although the narrator is 17, and it's when I slash she ran away to Sipolite, to the coast with a young man. But it's really about, um, well, the book, the main theme is disenchantment and, um, and exile and disenchantment, I think, and, and self-imposed exile, whether it's the characters, the emigres who've ended up in Mexico who make appearances in the book, or adolescence, which is this great antechamber to adulthood when you're trying out new things and um, creating your own imaginary, so all the music and the literature and uh, social conversations, um, some sort of socio-political backdrop. Everything is feeding into this person you'll become later. Mm -hmm. So I think I. So for me, it's very much my own adolescence, but reimagined and recast. And um, I changed a great deal, but um, but the the main armature is that one experience mm -hmm. of running away. And then the Ukrainian dwarves, so around that time, the late 80s, we did come across an, uh, an article in the newspaper about this troop of Ukrainian dwarves that had defected from a Soviet circus. <laughs> so I thought, that has to go into the book somehow. <laughs> and, and we were haunted by the story for years and never found out what happened to them. But, but I thought, well, um, that could give rise to thoughts of freedom and mm -hmm. even half-hearted fantasies of orphandom and whatever else a 17-year-old might be going through at the time. 
Right. There's something beautiful about how absurd that quest is, and and I love that she doesn't. Um, she's not on a. a a really uh, concerted mission to find the dwarves, but they are this launching impetus thing that that seems, um, I don't know, I think it is a wonderful representation of what pulls you into adulthood. It's, it's, it can be nothing. It's just something you decide has meaning and that you want to go after. And, um, and I love the description of adolescence as an antechamber to adulthood. Um, I have a, right. I have a seventeen-year-old and a nineteen-year-old, and the two um, main characters are seventeen and nineteen in this book. So I was reading it with a really, just a great appreciation for how you captured that moment in life, and and also the strangeness of it because uh, running away is this most is kind of the most straightforward way to establish that you you are you can do what you want, you can be autonomous. Um, but uh, it, especially with respect to my, my daughter who's 17 as a senior in high school, um, in theory she could be living on her own in a couple of months, but I don't, but not now. It kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but there is some threshold somewhere, kind of like a seashore. Uh, and and yet, I think it is really hard to write about adolescence without um, saying something that's been said many times before, or saying something that, in a way that um, people will recognize and appreciate, and they won't feel um, like something everyone already knows. And I, I wonder how you knew at this moment in your writing life that now was the time for you personally that you felt like you could go back to that story or if you um, if you had thought about embarking on this book earlier in your life or mm. if you have any thoughts about how it came to you now. Yes, well, I did go through many incarnations and I had, it was a story I've been carrying around for several decades and had written much shorter versions in the past but those are more like chronicles of the actual event and because my movements geographically and also um, most of my interests have been much more Eurocentric. Um, I didn't feel ready yet, or I, I was, I wouldn't say distracted, but I was pulled more towards England and Berlin and France, or the, the settings from my first two novels. And then I felt ready now to return to Mexico. But it almost felt like historical fiction because that Mexico, a lot mm -hmm. of it, it, it's fairly different going back now. So even, um, I had no idea the film was being made when I wrote it, but my character lives in La Roma, so even walking around that neighborhood, right. um, so many of the places no longer existed. So I actually preferred relying primarily on my memory and then my sister's prodigious memory and then photographs or the music that just would mm -hmm. conjure up a certain atmosphere from those times. So, um, so yes, it went through many incarnations and then um, the big challenge with this book, well, one of them was just feeling very free with my past and, and reminding myself I could do what I wanted with it and change as much as I wanted and base myself as loosely as I wanted to as mm -hmm. well, and that I wasn't betraying anything mm -hmm. by doing so, or creating mm -hmm. new characters, or... And my sister said, well, why aren't I in the book? And I said, well, because <laughs> it's fiction. You're, you're very present, but, you know, she's an mm -hmm. only child, and that's how... You know. mm -hmm. And it's not quite my... It's not my parents in the book either, even mm -hmm. though it is based on a right. real story. So, um, but then it's also... Uh, many of my later obsessions in life. Well, I was already, already reading the French symbolist poets in my adolescence, and that is when I discovered when Baudelaire, and especially, and Nerval um, first left their imprint. But it's something I worked on in my graduate studies, and then mm -hmm. so that yeah, 19th century French imaginary was very much always in the background, and um, and L'Autremont was the book I took to the beach mm. in real life. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so all those things have, are, continue to be very important mm -hmm. and sort of load stars in mm -hmm. my writing. So uh, speaking of, um, of place in the, and uh, your, your first book was set in, uh, in Berlin, right? And then your second book in England and this book in Mexico. And, um, and you grew up 
in the Netherlands and 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 Mexico. And Mexico. Uh, so I think uh, it is it is remarkable to um, to capture a place, but I think this is more of a. Um, I think it also is remarkable to feel like you have the uh, the authority or the familiarity with a place to write about it in the first place, and I um, wonder if you feel like more like any of the places that you've written about is more of a psychological or emotional home for you, or if you have felt, uh, you know, as uh, if you have felt a, um, a stronger sense of, of knowledge or authority in any one place over another. And I also, you, since you, you just told me you're working on another book, is it set in a different place? No, Germany and England. Okay. So. Um, well, definitely the Berlin novel, I've, the character, I'm sorry, the city became increasingly a character as I was writing, a protagonist onto its own, and the interface between self and city in that book, I think, uh, was so enmeshed, mm -hmm. that self and city became so enmeshed that, um, and there was such an immediacy because the years I was writing Book of Clouds, that novel, I was wandering around the city every day with my notebook, looking at faces on the trams, wandering the streets, certain neighborhoods, and... Um, it was uh, complete, even though I was writing about a slightly earlier Berlin. It was after the fall of the wall, but um, slightly earlier times, than, a decade earlier than I was writing. But um, so there, uh, I felt that uh, I was very porous to my surroundings, mm -hmm. and, and and with the Sunder too, because it's narrated by a museum guard at the National Gallery. I also spent hours and hours. It was wonderful in the rooms of the National Gallery again with my notebook and sometimes interviewing guards, sitting in different rooms, looking at the paintings, thinking up small mm -hmm. vignettes that could take place there. And, and so this book, it was more of a challenge because there wasn't the immediacy of place and I was also writing about the late 80s. So I had to tap into something else. Mm -hmm. Your sister. <laughs> yeah, my sister. Yeah, so. Um, so which came first? I mean, um, with Asunder when you were writing about or from the gallery, did you have a kind of vague idea of what that book would be, and then you deliberately went to, or did it come out of? Well, I knew, I've, I've always been very interested in museum guards and that strange triangular, um, I don't know what to call it, configuration when you're, especially when you find yourself alone in a room with just the paintings and the museum guard, if you're, well, if you're mm -hmm. in a gallery And they're watching paintings. you watch the art. Or not watching you. <laughs> yeah. And you never know whether to acknowledge their presence or mm -hmm. not to. And so actually, um, early on when I was researching Asunder, I drew up a list of questions and I would timidly approach the museum guards in London and say, do you mind, I'm working on the book. <laughs> and, and my first question was always uh, about invisibility. Mm -hmm. And without fail, every single one, so they, ref they preferred to be in remain invisible and not be acknowledged by hmm. visitors in the gallery. But, um, and then I became extremely interested, uh, or sort of obsessed with craquelure, the way oil paintings crack, the network of cracks in mm -hmm. oil paintings. So I, I read a lot about painting restoration and spoke to a restorer, and so that became a metaphor in the book. Um, and then I was interested in the suffragettes, their attacks on paintings, um, most famously, Velázquez's, Mary Richardson attack in 1914, attacking the Rockaby Venus, mm -hmm. Velázquez's painting in the National Gallery. So anyway, just, um, I set out with this handful of themes, and I guess I do this, I've done this with all three books, and then the challenge is creating some sort of metaphorical framework where they can all mm -hmm. speak to each other, and um, I can explore them all um, and develop them, mm -hmm. but uh, giving them all their place and space. That's... So interesting to me because um, the topic of theme, I mean, in this book, you can talk about it as a straightforward um, journey narrative. I mean, there's a, there's a beginning, the, there's a setup to why she leaves, why she runs away, then she runs away, and then, um, and then the journey concludes and she returns. Uh, but... I, I, um, you revisit the idea of a shipwreck often, and I actually loved thinking about that as a 
as an equally evident structure for the book, it, um, especially as a metaphor for memory or how um, this episode in the narrator's life has kind of sunk into her past and has degraded over time in some ways, but it has become something else and she revisits it and, and that really helped, or it was just enjoyable to think about it that way, to think about um, the way that all of the anecdotes and the images and the scenes that, that the narrator relates are, can filter through that mm -hmm. um, kind of metaphor. But I kept wondering how intentional that was or how, at, at what point you land on a theme in your construction of a book and then, and then you start filtering everything through it or keeping things and uh, that seems like a difficult approach but also very organizing because it, I can see how it would immediately be clear whether or not something would belong yeah. to the book when it occurs to you but grabbing the theme in the first place seems yeah, it takes a Challenging. while. Only after a few years does it, do I see exactly why it's uh -huh. meant to be in a book. And then in, in the final year, can I, do I find the right form and structure and uh -huh. place for everything? So, for instance, the shipwrecks were always in the book from the beginning. But I was, and I knew I was interested in this idea of history being decompressed from a shipwreck. Mm -hmm. And so even one's episodes in one's own personal history are somehow compressed right. into... So, again, that unearthing of a shipwreck. And even though, as you say, it's been deteriorated on, mm -hmm. deteriorating on the seabed. So I knew that the metaphor shipwrecks, that even though the one that my character is obsessed with is ancient Greece, and that's Mediter the Mediterranean, not the Pacific Ocean. But I thought, well, if I bring in the Baudelaire poem, and, mm -hmm. and I don't, there was just a way that, um, in that sort of adolescent logic, mm -hmm. everything could find its place. And hmm. Um, so, on the topic of adolescent logic, do you want to read the next okay. <laughs> selection? That seems like a decent <laughs> introduction. So, some of my friends from Mexico here might recognize uh, parts of the scene. Maybe let's see. Um, so this is an evening spent at the home of uh, my her friend Diego Deán, punk rock singer, draftsman, and occasional shaman. A small gathering, he'd called it, which it was in size but not tenor, our festivities conducted under the gaze of his three iguanas, who blinked warily each time a new guest arrived. Diego had produced hundreds of sketches from all angles and perspectives of his companions, frontal, profile, rear. He drew their prehistoric eyes, their lazy lids, their heavy blinks. These sketches hung on the walls between the bookshelves, and it was hard to tell where his pride lay most, with the drawings or the pets. That night, the creatures had watched us from their enclosures, tall glass tanks that loomed over the furniture in the living room. Someone put on a Klaus Nomi record, while a large spiral of white powder was prepared on the coffee table. Cards angled left and right, creating whorls so thick it looked like the ghost of an ammonite a logarithmic spiral like the ones from last year's geometry class. Once the spiral was completed, Diego rolled a 50 peso note into cylinder and helped himself to approximately two centimeters of powder. After inhaling, he passed the note to the guy next to him, who repeated the action before passing it on. Eventually, the rolled up banknote reached me, its paper warm from so many fingers, and what could I do but join in the ritual? The bold hum of voices, mostly male, rose and fell around me, Everyone talking and thought-walking like cantinflas, their voices expansive, compulsive, filling every inch of air. And soon I too felt charged, charged and restive and impervious to everything. And after two lines, I rose from the sofa and marched over to one of the iguana tanks and stuck in my arm. But scarcely had my fingers touched the top of the scaly head than Diego rushed over and yanked my sleeve, saying I'd clearly never experienced the dinosaur teeth or dinosaur scratch or dorsal thwack of their tails not to mention one should never approach an iguana from above, only from the side, otherwise they think they're under attack. And furthermore, it takes years to gain an iguana's trust, he said with pride as the creature looked up at us with an indifferent eye. Diego returned to the table, circling the spiral like a sinister gesture. Someone turned up Klaus Nomi, and for a moment the living room was transformed into an opera set, and in my mind Diego Deán and Klaus Nomi became one. 
Diego could be Nomi without the makeup, it occurred to me. They had the same arched eyebrows and beaky nose and rosebud mouth. Then again, Nomi had recently died of AIDS in solitary conditions in New York, I remembered reading, people too scared of the new disease to even visit. Dark thoughts began to wash over me, the shadow side of drugs, which was why I didn't venture there often. And I tried to sink into the sofa despite being too wired to properly sink, observing the dwindling spiral as every few minutes another whorl vanished, every guest part of the antihelical operation that slowed down as we neared the center. I've been thinking of getting up and checking on the iguanas when the doorbell rang, announcing the after hours gang. They were like astronomers. Night was never long or black enough. First there was Seda, who with his 1940s suit and ruddy cheeks and greased back hair reminded me of a wind-up doll, and his sidekick El Chino, who lived with his pet canary, Juan El Ciego, blind since birth, for whom he fashioned nests out of discarded shoulder pads. And El Chino's older girlfriend, Lorita, a tense woman in a purple jacket who had a habit of finishing other people's sentences. And last, El Pitufo, a coke dealer who wrote poetry. People listened to him recite his latest poems in exchange for free samples, and the more they consumed, the, the better the, his poetry sounded to their ears. He longed to be taken seriously, but when people saw him, all they could think of were fine light, white lines. Another spiral quickly formed on the coffee table, cast forth from a folded white envelope rather than any mystery of torsion. El Chino replaced Nomi with Bauhaus, then Japan. The spiral changed shape, everyone spoke at once, and whenever someone approached the table, the others followed their movements with dilated pupils, rarely a pause between beers, words, or cigarettes. And that night, I felt deliriously attached from, detached from it all. Detached, that is, until I began to worry about the iguanas. We were keeping them up. They looked increasingly vexed. I suggested we dim the lights and turn down the music, but no one, including myself, could be bothered to tend to either. And only when an iguana nodded off, its dropping lid shutting out our species for the night, did it occur to me to check my watch, which read 10 to 3, information that jolted me back to my senses. And I said goodbye to the sleeping creatures and left the others to their fine white lines while El Pitufo recited his. But once home, it was impossible to drift off. A white electricity ran through me, as if my system had been rewired by an evil technician. Only then, as I tossed and turned under my wool blanket, did I think of Tomas, amazed that I had completely forgotten about his existence for nearly five hours. But now the technician had returned those thoughts and others to their casing. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, I, I, listening to you read that reminded me of um, when I was uh, when I was a freshman in high school, or now, I, ever since I was a freshman in high school, I have realized that uh, when I was a freshman, the teenagers who were seniors in high school seemed impossibly old and cool, and no one has ever seemed that old or that cool to me since. And it, there was something about how legendary my my immediate peers seemed that it's it's never been like that before and and i mean it's never been like that since and uh and yet and how they kind of stay there in your memory as in you know whatever legendary qualities they had at that time mm. but um i've been thinking about this a lot lately because i when i am around my daughter and her friends and they are making their own society and they're out on the weekends and they're probably doing things like this and uh, and uh, and they still they do I see glimpses of the the people they you know will become and of course there's there are people now but they're also children and uh, it's just really um, I don't know I, I feel like you did a, a wonderful job in this book of capturing that uh, that moment when it's very new to create your own society with your peers and it seems special and you also can't figure out what it means and it and you keep falling out of it and um but uh the question that that scene leads me to is about uh the parents who are uh you describe them very well as as hovering in in one sentence. You talk about the, how that's what they do. They just hover in your 
mind or in the landscape of your life. They're sort of there somewhere all the time, no matter how old you are. And uh, so when she's with her friends, she's not at home. Her parents don't really know where she is. And then, of course, she runs away, and they really don't know where she is. And um, at the end of the book, her, her father finds her, and he tells her the story of how he searched for her. And uh, as I was reading that, I felt like it was a really important inclusion that if, if she, the narrator, had not heard about, had not heard with such specificity how he looked for her, um, the story would have felt open or imbalanced in some way. Um, and I wonder if you always knew that you would tell that part of the story. And then I, I also wonder if, um, with respect to your personal story, how you talked to your parents about it over the years, if you mm. did, and uh, just what it felt like to, to tell the father's story, uh, you as the writer. Well, I always knew I was going to include it because my father did go looking for me and kept a notebook chronicling his search, oh, wow. which he handed to me <laughs> a few days later. So I changed a lot, but it is basically all the details of his search. Are, uh, so in earlier drafts, I'd switch between their voices, and then I just thought it wasn't working. I wasn't happy with it. So I thought better for her to just be in her head the whole time and her story, and then mm -hmm. at the end, the father arrives, and then she realizes that there's been this parallel search going on and um, um, the normity of what she's done. Mm -hmm. Um, what was the second part of your question was? Uh, uh, I was asking about, yeah. Whether I was going to include it and then. And then how you had talked about your own personal, your experience with your oh, yes, parents. Yes. Well, then a very strange thing happened was that um, a few years after Oaxaca, so for a few years we couldn't mention the word, well, the boy's real name or the <laughs> place at home because my father would just tense up and we never really spoke about it. For, huh. And then uh, I was already at university and I went home and we went to the Museum of Anthropology and he was working there as a tour guide. <laughs> he was wearing a suit, I don't know, sort of avuncular shoulder pads mm -hmm. like, too big for him. And, and my father didn't notice him, but his face turned white when he saw my father. And he was there with a group um, showing them around <laughs> the museum. So, um, but my father always knew I was going to write about it and always, uh, well, he's reading it now. He hasn't read it yet, actually, but... Okay, he yeah, always I wondered expected about the story to somehow mm -hmm. resurface. Mm -hmm. and, and I've now at this point, I've invented so much, I've embroidered so much around it. Mm -hmm. that the real episode is still there, but a lot hmm. of it is uh, invented. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, I suppose that episode did represent some sort of rupture, not with my parents, but within myself. Or, uh -huh. or, uh, and probably the the greatest act of rebellion <laughs> carried out. Hmm. So uh, you mentioned a little while ago that, uh, or you alluded to how the, the book kind of comes together at the end of your process of writing it, um, as if you're familiar with that stage, but I'm, I'm so I, I guess I, I'm wondering if um, uh, with the three books, if you feel like at this point, having written three books, you understand if they have formed themselves in similar ways or if each has been different or if you now recognize wayposts in, in the journey or uh, if you could just talk a little bit about what it feels like to make a book from when you conceive of it to how you how it evolves I think they they often start off quite fragmentary in nature a lot of vignettes and then certainly with the first novel and the second to a large extent a lot of time is spent um, develop writing connective tissue and and then some arc um, in this one, it was different because I knew from the beginning exactly what the arc was going to be. Mm -hmm. But um, I wasn't satisfied with just telling that story, and I thought um, I wasn't interested in telling it chronologically, and I didn't want it to really be a love story or mm -hmm. or, or 
or an anti-love story, just some, you know, I wasn't interested in that theme. But um, I think, and for this one, I th there is something, uh, the, the way I, the, I structured it, that I wanted to have sort of tidal rhythms mm -hmm. and a certain oscillation that was mirroring the character's oscillation and uh, thoughts of home, and then there she was at the beach, thoughts of being pulled, the pull of the city, mm -hmm. and then back at the beach, and um, a correspondence between scenes from the city and ones at the beach, and certain characters echoing ones, uh, maybe the ones on the beach that somehow echo the ones at the goth club she went to uh, mm -hmm. the, in the city. Um, but, uh, so you had that vision for it kind of from the beginning. Um, but do you think, was the writing of Book of Clouds like that? Do you feel like that is a personal evolution of yours as a writer, or it is just how you are as a writer? Probably both. Mm -hmm. <laughs> one can I think that, I mean, one, one surprises oneself, and I think towards the, one of the most satisfying stages towards the end of a book, when you realize you've found the right form for it, for it everything's in its place, mm -hmm. There's this magical correspondence between the themes and images, which was only half conscious, mm -hmm. but um, everything has been working mysterious ways mm -hmm. on its, not on its own, but um, just, you're bringing new things to it constantly, but there's often a just like reshifting, resettling mm -hmm. um, going on in the meantime. And so, um, I don't know. I, I, what, one thing I was certain about uh, was that I wanted this character to have more agency than the other two. Although all three of my characters are live in, to some extent a world of daydream and, and mm -hmm. they observe a lot and to some extent are quite withdrawn and introverted. Uh, but this time around, even though in real life it was the boy who said, let's run off mm -hmm. to the beach, um, I wanted, I was very certain from the onset that I wanted my character to be the one Why to initiate. Why is that? Well, I just, I thought a lot about how, you know, young female characters having less a sense of agency uh -huh. and, um, and it's not something, I, I wasn't, with my first two books, well, the second book, The Museum Guard, um, it is basically tracing her slow revolt against her own passivity, both in her life and her profession. Um, and the suffragettes and other female figures in the book having a much more performative existences mm -hmm. than her own. But, um... So this one, of course, at age 17, you don't know yet. Right. Who you're, what sort of, you're still in the process of becoming. Um, and I don't know. When I finished it, I thought, I couldn't tell what it was very similar or very different from the other two huh. novels. Mm -hmm. I think um, we can take some of your questions, if anyone has any. Um, Anything. Yes, sir. Uh, do you write in other languages? Uh, have you or will you? Um, you know, I like I like your geo the geography in your books. Um, is there a language that you feel more at home in? And then maybe related to that would be um, how has it been with working with like, translators into some of the languages that you read? Um, well, I've very occasionally read short written short texts in Spanish, but. I've been living in English for so many years now, and most of my graduate and well, undergrad, most of my university studies were in English, and I've been living in London now for many years. But um, I wrote uh, my first novel. I wrote when I was in Berlin, and the second and third novels I wrote already in London. So it's funny because a, a professor of my sister said he could tell I was living in a foreign language when I wrote my first novel, which. Now when I look at it, I, I think, is the English somehow, is there a foreignness to it? The, the, uh, I don't know, maybe it's also just the first novel that, I don't know, you're discovering your own usage. But, um, and I've, I translated a book of my father's called The Child Poet, came out uh, three years ago. And I'm, def I'm certainly interested in, in doing more translation work, and I work closely with the Spanish translators of my novels. Unfortunately, with the... Um, French and German, they refused to show me the, the other two languages I can read. Um, they, they didn't want to show me the manuscript before it was published. 
So I, I find mistakes each time I open something. It's quite <laughs> gutting. But, um, but I think um, there's something that uh, Leonora Carrington, who's an English serialist I, I've worked on uh, and uh, guest curated a show of hers, and she said something that she lived, she grew up in England, that was in France and then Mexico. But she said, you know, it's very important to create your own personal geography. And I think that's true. You don't even, it, you can live in one place your whole life and still create a personal geography that's not rooted in one city or one spot. So I think I've, not consciously, but been doing that over the years. And, um, and I think um, just the knowledge of other languages somehow feeds into, your, into the one language you write in. And with prepositions or double meanings uh, in ways that surprise you sometimes. Uh, well, she was a family friend, and um, we met through our. There was a wonderful doctor in Mexico called Teodoro Cesarman, who um, saw many writers and artists and never charged anyone. So we would all see, or an offspring of <laughs> writers and artists. So, so my father's a writer, so we would go see him. And then one day we went to his house for lunch, and Leonora was there in the early 90s. And so for the last two decades of her life, we'd most Sundays go to her house for tea. Or I would when I was visiting Mexico, and my parents would most of it. And then I had written about her once or twice. So in 2015, Tate Liverpool had a big exhibition of hers, and they asked me to guest curate it. So I worked on that. And um, um, and I don't know whether she's been a direct influence. I don't th think she's been a direct influence on my work, but certainly her spirit is is always hovering. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about her work for people who don't, aren't familiar with it? Well, she has a lot of uh, hybrids, a lot of fantastical creatures, and, and uh, creaturely hybrids. And it was also uh, syncretism between European and Celtic mythologies and then pre-Hispanic cosmologies. And she has a wonderful mural called The Magical World of the Mayas in the Museum of Anthropology in Mexico. And has a sub is the underworld, and in many of her paintings, there's an underworld. Um, and she, she was very. It, it's quite extraordinary. It was a fusion of a, a very well, sort of Irish myth and folktale and Celtic mythology, and then pre-Hispanic. But then she often had she loved animals and and very much and the feral spirit. So she would bring that into her most of her. Painting. She loved mm. animals more than people. That's very <laughs> evident in the in her work. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, when I was actually when I was sixteen, so uh, you're younger. And uh, do you know the story? No, because yeah, he's one of our oldest friends from Mexico, <laughs> Mauricio. Um, yeah, so when I was sixteen, I I was very bookish and obedient and shy, and um, liked someone who was only at our school for a month, and then dropped out, and then asked me to cut, run away to see Polite with him. And I said, but my parents won't let me go. And he said, well, don't tell them. <laughs> and that crazy. 16 year old mind I thought oh you're right I'll just pack my bag and you know we'll meet after he said I'll pick you up after school <laughs> we'll just go we boarded the bus and to Cipolite but um yes I, I to this day I can't believe I put them through that but I I still say sorry when I have to <laughs> but everyone survived so um yeah <laughs> yeah, well, 2 a.m., yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why. <laughs> <laughs> but my father says this because the city is more dangerous now. I said, well, yeah. But, yeah, we have quite protective parents. But, um, but it's fine. I, I think about it now more than 
I did for many years of, of growing up in Mexico, and um, I've recently, uh, I recently wrote a piece um, for Granta called The Tension of Transience, and it's about being an adolescent, sort of, kind of golf. Not, well, my sister and I, well, we listen to love golf. There's a mini golf. Too. So just what it was like to be a golf in Mexico, a young golf in Mexico in the late 80s. And, and, um, and I thought a lot about the Baroque, the Baroque and how it's the syncretism between um, European and pre-Hispanic cultures and, well, in this case, subcultures. And, of course, being in Mexico, um, there's skull rings in every marketplace and the mm -hmm. transition from being just Mexican to being golf <laughs> one step the, and the skulls already have skeletons already have such a place sort of the metaphysics of mm -hmm. the country that um, to add some aesthetic European backdrop and in my book I say you know these we preferred the we preferred European moonlight to the Mexican sun and I think that's um, that was very much the but um, it was a place, and it, well, in Nueve, where we went, um, the, the gay goth club in the book, um, it, it was started by a Frenchman, I think, in 1978, and he saw night, he envisioned night as a cultural enterprise. So they had a lot of magazine launches and, and drag shows, mm -hmm. and everyone dressed up. There was a certain theater to it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that accompanied the music a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And, but yeah, but this tension of transience also, of the, fu the sense of the fugitive and trying to capture something that, uh, well, adolescence is, you know, well, mm -hmm. this, uh, this self and transformation and you're witnessing it and trying to somehow give it shape even though it's right. so mutable. And, mm -hmm. Mm. I'd say that um, it's hard to say because in terms of trauma, uh, up until now, that this has been the main, I hesitate to call it traumatic experience, although it probably was. Um, and the only recent traumatic experience was being attacked by my parents' German shepherd. <laughs> that was very traumatic. I was thinking Carrington. Carrington, for trauma. Yeah. Oh, her life. Yeah, oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, her life was full of trauma. Right. Yeah. Oh, Carrington. Well, she, as you probably know, she wrote a chronicle of her nervous breakdown. So after, do people know... Leonora Carrington's mm -hmm. story, life story. That, so. so she was, so she was the daughter of an industrialist, and then uh, when she was nineteen, she went. She was at art school briefly in London, and met Max Ernst when he was forty-six. She was nineteen, and they ran away to to Paris, and then they were in, in France in a farmhouse in Saint Martin d'Ardèche. They were separated by the war, and he was arrested, taken in as a German prisoner of war, even though he was in the resistance. And then she had a nervous breakdown, and her family institutionalized her in Santander in, in Spain, in an asylum. And she wrote what they call a, it won't, break, it won't collapse. Uh, uh, she wrote sort of what some have called a serialist memoir of her breakdown, because there was a lot of invention in it. Um, but that was also very much her way of, of somehow harnessing or doing something with the trauma and, and Fine. The first version was in French, and it was lost, and she rewrote it in English. <laughs> and then she, um, with a, a diplomat, Mexican diplomat named Renato Leduc, they went to New York together, and he brought her to Mexico, and they were briefly married just so she could escape, and then they divorced, and then he, she was married to Chiki Weiss, who was a Hungarian survivor of the Holocaust. Well, he was Jewish, and most of his family was extinguished. So there was a lot of trauma in the house. He, his was very silent, but Leonora... She was very resilient, and um, I think um, 
quite cynical, but also very resilient and just had her own, oh yeah, her own imaginary that she created and gave her tremendous strength and she inhabited. She didn't leave her house very much. She had her studio on the third floor. Um, uh, in terms of form, well, she wrote, she sculpted, she had, um, and her paintings have, many of them have different strata. Um, one can interpret them as layers of consciousness and the underworld, and subterranean energy. Probably, but not consciously. <laughs> but she doesn't have a cameo in this book. And, No, I put it off, I deferred it for a long time, so I spent my 20s in academia knowing I wanted to write but not feeling ready and then uh, made the decision early on that I'd write in English since my father writes in Spanish. And, uh, um, and then it wasn't until I moved to Berlin that I felt free enough and also unshackled from all the literary criticism that uh, I've been reading at my uh, university. And, but it also fed into, it's also fed into my work because in the 19th century French poetry. But, um. hmm. Thank you very much for coming. And uh, so we'll move the chairs and then Chloe will sign books if you want. And I think you'd like for people to buy them at the register and then? Yes, okay. if you could buy your, your copy up at the register first uh, and bring it back here to get it signed, that'd be great. The chairs have a trick to folding them up. If you flip them around and put your foot on the bar, of, on the back, um, they'll fold right up. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.